for 12 years in a row. Ranking Arizona's number one most trusted referral network, rosieonthehouse.com. And we're privileged and happy to have you. And over three decades of Rosie on the House. Happy New Year. Woo! Here we go. Let's rack up another one. Good morning, Arizona. If you're up and about this morning, you're one of the responsible citizens that went to bed early last night. (laughs) Is that responsible or boring? Woo! Well, I was very grateful. Uh... It's the first New Year's in our neighborhood uh, in a long time, in as long a time as I can remember, that no one was firing midnight fireworks. Well, I heard our fireworks at 930, so I think our neighborhood is getting older. <laughs> I love that. Okay. All right. Yeah, that, that would make sense. So our, our New Year's fireworks show was at 930. I love that. You can go to bed and everybody pass out. Folks, if you... Uh, subscribe to newspapers, there's a very good chance in this weekend's edition, you're going to end up with a Rosie on the House calendar for 2022. And in that, we've already mailed out all of those of you who sent your addresses, 20,000 of you. Um, And you've got the new 2022 calendar. And you'll know after looking at that, that in the month of January here, we're going to start the new year talking about what it takes to become a good neighbor, all right? Things you need to be aware of in uh, living in your neighborhood and what could be considered polite and what could be considered just downright rude uh, as it relates to all dimensions of living next door to your neighbor. And we're going to start that this today by talking about good neighbors and bad neighbors. And we're going to do that with special guests coming in the studio before I do, before I introduce our guest, Romy, happy new year. Happy new year. Here we go, baby. Can you already believe it's already been a week since Christmas? Um, No, I, I feel like I've spent more time at the airport in the last three days than I've spent in the last three years down there. Uh, big travel crowds. I mean, every time I picked up or dropped off one of the family at the airport, you weren't alone. And none of their flights were canceled? Nah, not so far. Very good. Everybody we've uh, sent home to Brussels, Belgium, they got in. Uh, Sent one to Portland this morning, they got off. Uh, Happy New Year, sweet Jennifer. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Gary D. Happy New Year. Ah, man, it's going to be another great one. And Happy New Year to all of you, the Arizona homeowners. Special thanks to, uh, uh, we had, a, we had a, a, a holiday greeting card in the mailbox here at the radio station this morning from a listener who, who just said, we appreciate the show, thanks for all the advice, and included a little check for Jenner Fry to go out and have a little lunch together. Barbecue. Yeah. Barbecue lunch. They listened long enough to know that you're the barbecue queen of Arizona. <laughs> So now we can get back to our introducing our special guests on the topic of neighbors. And repeat uh, uh, appearance, 
by Dr. David Dean, Associate Professor of History at Grand Canyon University. Dr. Dean, thanks for welcoming this morning. Good morning and Happy New Year to you. Thanks for coming in. So on the topic of good neighbors, I'd like to maybe go back in history and pick out a couple examples of bad neighbors. Sure. Where do we start that conversation? Well, perhaps the the best one example is the Pleasant Valley War, uh, where the Tewksbury's and the Grahams really got after it. Uh, and that's really uh, a part of the cattle ranching history of Arizona that uh, is probably the most famous feud, not just in Arizona, but in the western part of the United States. You are not going to start a good neighborly relationship by killing your neighbor's sheep tender. Nope. Uh, that, that's that's going to be a bad start to a relationship. Yeah, and, and that, the again, the range wars back in those days were really, really an important part of the western history. As cattle ranching, open range was a big issue. Um, and sheep, when they worked on the same ranges, they would eat more uh, vegetation. They could kind of annihilate it and it made it harder for the cattle to come through. And so a lot of money was at stake keeping those herds uh, going and whatnot. So cattlemen and sheep herders did not get along very well. And then, of course, if you rustled a couple of guys' cattle because he had a bigger herd than yours <laughs> and that kind of stuff, uh, that would lead to some violence and conflict, which really uh, came down to the Tewksbury's and the and the Graham families here in Arizona. Right, right here in Arizona, mm-hmm. in Pleasant Valley, uh, which is located east of Four Peaks. It's also called the Tonto Rim mm-hmm. uh, Range War. Mm-hmm. It's also called the Pleasant Valley War. It's also called the Graham Tewksbury Feud. Mm-hmm. Uh, lasted what, like 35 years? 35 years, and estimates uh, of the number of people killed in it were anywhere from 20 to 50 people as, uh, involved in actually murdered or killed as part of this war. So it all starts with these two families that at one time, I understand, were fairly decent close friends. Yes, the Tewksbury's and the Grams, they actually kind of had a partnership to share the range lands uh, for their uh, their uh, their livestock. And um, a big cattleman came in uh, by the name of uh, uh, Jim Stenson, and he was a much bigger rancher, much bigger herds. Uh, and so he wanted to use those lands, and he kind of wedged himself between the two families getting one side on his side, and that started things off with a little bit of violence and rustling some cattle, and then it just went all out from there. And it's in, it's called Pleasant Valley, and it really is a very beautiful area of Arizona. As a matter of fact, the little town of Young is kind of in the heart of the northern part of Pleasant Valley. And in the little town of Young, they actually have the Pleasant Valley War Days every summer in July. Now, I hope they don't do reenactments. Of uh, That would be um, a good time to change your name if you're still a Graham or a Tewksbury. Oh, you know? man. So it was the, actually the Perkins store in Young that was kind of a f- site of a famous bloody ambush as that, that was a part of the Pleasant Valley Wars. Yeah, um, the— um, at the uh, general store there, uh, the you know the conflict kind of brings itself out uh, there as as when people come into town, they start to uh, uh, talk about what's going on with each other and who's doing what, and um, tempers flare, and next thing you know, violence happens. Uh, in se- September of 1887, uh, um, the uh, 
an outsider was kind of around, hanging around. Uh, they think that that outsider might have been a, a hired gun or something like that. And uh, A famous hired gun. Tom Horn, yes. Yeah, uh, very uh, famous hired gun. Who was trying to just go as uh, in the mining industry and trying to kind of go straight, but there's more money to be made in being a hired gun in those days. And so he got involved. And at this general store, it ended up uh, um, John Graham and uh, Charles Bevins uh, had a shootout there at, this, uh, at the Perkins store there in Young. Um, and, um, of course, that brings attention to the lawmen and famous uh, Arizona lawman William Bucky O'Neill and Commodore Perry Owens starts to get involved in this in this conflict at that time. A lot of very historic Arizona significant names all involved in this Pleasant Valley War. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, um, amazing um, that uh, it touched so much part of early Arizona in our territorial days. In fact, this war, the violence associated with this war convinced the uh, federal government that we were not ready for our own individual <laughs> territorial status uh, or statehood. because we, we were being bad neighbors. We were being bad neighbors. Uh, well, too lawless out here. Well, I've actually, if my memory serves me right, it, isn't Pleasant Valley War in history in all of America one of the longest lasting, bloodiest range wars of all? Uh, yes, yes, it's uh, it's up there. You know, those range wars were again across the West as cattlemen uh, and sheep farmers, but a lot of times cattlemen and farmers conflicted over open range versus fenced off. You have the ear of the barbed wire during this time, and that hurt cattle uh, migrations around and, and herding and things. So you have a conflicts in almost every state, but for one to go on. 35 years or so and involves so many people. Yes, this is one of the most significant range wars. And it's up there as a, as a feud, a family feud, uh, with uh, the Hatfields and McCoys. A lot of times people will lump those two together as examples of the kind of the family conflicts, bad neighbors, so to speak. It starts in 1887 uh, with the murder of a sheep tender, sheep herder, a shepherd. Uh, I understand he was assassinated and I... Well, am I wrong? Was he beheaded? Um, he was uh, uh, murdered by Andy Cooper uh, and uh, as a sheep herder. He was a foreigner. Uh, he was Basque. Uh, and so, again, there was some prejudice against that. And so oftentimes um, people who were, weren't uh, white and of status, so to speak, they had a lesser status. And so, obviously, he was... Uh, uh, Caught in this, uh, caught up in this uh, range war between uh, the Tewksburys and the Grams. So the first mortality is a Basque shepherd in 1887. 1885. 1885. Okay, the last the, mortality. The last of this feud. Last mortality was uh, uh, they. You know, there are a number of lynchings and unresolved murders that kind of go on <laughs> uh, for a while. But uh, the last uh, Tom Graham was the last to be involved in this feud, and he was murdered in Tempe. In 1892, on the streets of Tempe, on the streets of Tempe, um, and and Edwin Tewksbury was accused of the murder, um, but he was defended by um, uh, attorney Tom Fitch, who's again another kind of prominent name in Arizona law history. Um, and so, two trials, and it was deadlocked, and he ended up dying in 1904. But uh, uh, that was kind of the last chapter of this range war. The Pleasant Valley War is a perfect example of bad, being bad neighbors. We have a couple more illustrations we're going to talk about in the next segment. It's a, 
You're being a bad neighbor when you murder your neighbor. You're being a bad neighbor when you marry 105 women. We're going to be talking about uh, Miss uh, Giovanni Vigliotti. Yeah, of 105 wives, and then Winnie Ruth Judd. Winnie Ruth Judd, another bad neighbor. In the next segment, all bad neighbors. And we're going we're gonna to flip the story uh, at the bottom of the hour, and we'll talk to you about some of the best neighbors Arizona Legacy has to share with you. Good neighbors, bad neighbors. Talking historical bad neighbors in Arizona with Dr. David Dean from Grand Canyon University. Dr. Dean, uh, quite an education there on the Pleasant Valley Wars. What a nice name for a war. <laughs> Pleasant Valley, <laughs> yes. Well, uh, if you know, you've, had, you've seen Pleasant Valley, if you've ever driven through Cole's Ranch, you know, going up to the rim top. I mean, you're looking right down on it. Yeah. That is Pleasant Valley, and you were talking about some of the famous people. You know, if you're new to Arizona, you mentioned Bunky O'Neill. Well, you, you know, there's a statue of him at the Prescott Courthouse on the north side. I mean, the, these are people that have, you know, monuments built throughout the state in their name. Sure. The territorial days are, are pretty well commemorated here in the state of Arizona. You know, and, and the, it wasn't just up in that northern muggy on rim area. I mean, the, the war stretched all the way down to Globe, Arizona. Uh, like we mentioned in the last hour, uh, a murder in Tempe. I mean, it was a big affair uh, across the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, other historic examples of bad neighbors. Well, I, I, I don't think we could skip over one of... Arizona's more notorious residents in all of history. Winnie Ruth Judd. Winnie Ruth Judd. So she was a very interesting character in that uh, uh, just a, someone who uh, got caught up in uh, relationships that, with uh, um, pe- uh, people she worked with, uh, people that were her neighbors, and she was renting from people, and they got kind of in this— uh, kind of love triangle, so to speak, and things went really bad, and she ended up murdering uh, two people um, uh, uh, the, that were, she was in supposedly having this relationship with this man and uh, the rival other lover, and she ended up murdering them. But what made her so notorious was her plan aftermath. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that, that really stamped her, her well, it, legacy in history right there. Right. It gave her the, the nickname, the Trunk Murderers. And that's because she dismembered the bodies of the victims and put them into three trunks and then tried to escape to go to California to get away and to dispose of the, the, the bodies in California. Um, but the problem was is that she went to the train station that night and had to wait for the train the next morning. Meanwhile, the freshly dismembered bodies of Ugh. the two victims have been stuffed into these trunks. And by the next morning, they're kind of leaking this all over the... This was plastic bags. <laughs> yeah, yes. Glad um, that the, the, the 50-gallon glad sacks <laughs> hadn't come along That's yet. right. The, um, and so, so because of that, uh, uh, there's 
they thought that she was carrying an animal in, you know, a, a, a deer or something, and they, which would have been illegal anyway to take on the train. So when they confronted her, they said, ma'am, you know, there's something something coming out of your uh, trunks, trunks here that are probably – of course, the stench. There's flies all over the place. And so she fled, um, but uh, eventually they kind of caught up with her and, um, and arrested her and opened the trunks and found what she had done. So, so she spends time – in the state hospital, mm-hmm. uh, she spends time in prison. I mean, she's actually defended uh, by a very prominent uh, local attorney uh, who who we just lost last year. Yeah, um, and and that defense was um, part of the, the prosecution. Of course, wanted to make this a big dramatic story, uh, uh, and and suggests that she was really heavily involved in this murder where she the defense was really kind of revolving around she didn't do the murder somebody else did but she helped dispose of the bodies and so they're trying to get her away from the uh the murder itself um as a resident of the hospital wasn't she a regular escapee very much a regular escapee she uh (laughs) Uh, often would uh, disappear, uh, get out and wander the streets. Uh, she spent one New Year, uh, Christmas Eve out, uh, just said, you know, apparently the food wasn't there, very great there or something. But uh, uh, she actually escaped and made it all the way to Northern California one time and, and established a, a new identity and stuff uh, and lived there for about seven years before uh, they were finally returned uh, to the um, – to the state hospital uh, and uh, kept there for a while. And um, finally, uh, Jack Williams, the governor at the time, uh, agreed to release her uh, uh, in kind of a hushed kind of way. Um, But uh, her bid for parole was then successful, and she moved to Stockton, California, and uh, lived out there the rest of her days. Yeah, I mean, she she died like in the late 90s. Um, 1998, yeah. Okay. So it would seem to me, with the examples we've brought up so far on being bad neighbors, we're all gross violators of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> thou shalt not kill. Thou, thou shalt not thou kill. Shalt thou not shalt not covet. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Uh, <laughs> rustle cattle and things. So now I'd like to flip the table and go to great examples of very good Arizona Neighbors, when we get back with Dr. David D. Sure. I told you. We got back. We'd be talking about some of the best neighbors in the whole state of Arizona. And boy, Sanderson Ford's right at the top of the list for that, for all of you. In Glendale, 67 years, family-owned, operated, 64 acres of beautiful Ford vehicles. I ran over there just last week and worked with Mr. Jason. I said, Jason, put me in one of those Ford Rangers. So one of our superintendents got a brand new uh, XLT Ford Ranger, white, of course, to match every other white truck we've got on the road. And uh, I just had, I just had a ball driving that truck across town. It 
just so responsive, so easy to weave in and out of traffic and park. I love it. And this is like the first Ranger of all the Ford vehicles and the, the, the business and family fleet. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. We're always in 150s, 250s or bigger. And uh, this this was a little hoot to drive, I'll tell you. I I hope my superintendents all love them because I, it's my plan to put them all in that that little rig. You love know, to, it. the one thing I've always liked about them is the ease of access in and out for your tools from the job site. You know, sometimes on the bigger trucks you can't reach the middle. Almost from from standing on the ground unless you're like you know you got like a six four wingspan or something exactly. So being good neighbors is something Sanderson Ford has been doing for a long, long time. If you're in the market for a new vehicle or a good certified used vehicle, get over to Sanderson Ford on 51st Avenue, just south of Glendale. And I promise you, you'll thank me for that. Hi. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? This is the Rose on the House topic of the week. It's easy to be a good neighbor. You can get to our website, rosieonthehouse.com, or as a subscriber to our email newsletter, you've already gotten it in your email box on Thursday. It's easy to be a good neighbor. And we list some of the things involved in being a good neighbor. And it's kind of distressing when you look at some research conducted by Pew Research Center. It says that four in 10 rural residents say they know most of their neighbors. 40% of rural homeowners know their neighbors. And it only gets worse in the city. Goes all the way down to 24%. Don't even know who their neighbors are. <laughs> so the first thing we would encourage you to do is get out there and meet your neighbor. And we're here talking about good neighbors uh, with Dr. David Dean from Grand Canyon University. Dr. Dean, again, thank you. And you've got some particularly outstanding examples of some good Arizona neighbors. Well, and, and, you know, you never know who your neighbors are until you get out and meet them. Like, for example, with uh, Giovanni Vigliotto, the guy that married 105 wives. Um, so, you know. Did, did they all live with him? Uh, over the years, he defrauded a number of women of their property, and then he would move on and uh, went on trial for that eventually, uh, uh, 28 counts of fraud and that kind of stuff. But you never know who your neighbors now, are. what's his connection to Arizona? Uh, well, several of the women that he defrauded were Arizona residents. So a person in Mesa, he actually uh, uh, went on trial in Tucson uh, and uh, died in prison here in Arizona. So oh, okay. Yeah, so he's kind of connected. But there, you know, you talk about neighbors and creating neighborhoods and those things. And, and one of the biggest examples that I see, an Arizonan who, who, who created neighbors across the country was Ernest McFarland and the GI Bill. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, known as the GI Bill, provided three things for six million veterans coming home from World War II. One, it provided educational benefits for them to go to trade school, to go to college, and go beyond in order to to develop education. They also provided loans for those who wanted to just come home and go straight into business. And it provided VA loans 
uh, low-interest homeowner loans for veterans to purchase homes, which sparked that huge housing boom of the 1950s and all the suburbia and all those kind of things. It created a middle class of neighbors and people moving out of the cities and in, out of apartments and things to suburbs and to those little cookie-cutter kind of houses and things that we see everywhere. Um, and that that readjustment, like that GI Bill, he created neighbors by by creating this opportunity for this middle class of wealthy, you know, people to have money in their pocket and to be able to uh, own a home and send their kids to school and have good jobs and get an education and things. And just a phenomenal piece of legislation written by our own Ernest McFarland, who was uh, a senator, uh, a representative, and he also served as governor of Arizona. And so he's a fantastic neighbor creator. And... Um he was a World War One vet. Yes, he was a World War One veteran, and, and his, part of his experience when he came home from World War One, of course, uh, the veterans that came home were promised pensions. But when the Great Depression happened, a lot of them were left out in the cold. In fact, a bonus army, army they called it, marched on Washington to demand their bonuses, demand their pensions uh, during the Hoover administration, and so he went through that experience and said, we, "We've got to do a better job of bringing those soldiers back and re." readmitting them into society. And so his plan, the GI Bill, spread those $6 million out so we didn't hit that and create a big unemployment gap by displacing people because, it, again, it, some could start businesses and immediately go to work. Some would go to trade schools. Some would go to four-year colleges. And as they became business owners, as they became employees, as they started to develop their careers, the first thing they did in that baby boom era was they got married, bought a house, and had kids. And that created those suburb explosions of the 1950s. And this bonus army that marched on Washington, mm -hmm. name the generals that put that down. Um, I think it was, uh, uh, was Eisenhower it? and MacArthur. It was General MacArthur and Eisenhower. And Patton apparently was there as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again... Eisenhower going on to be president of the United States, you could see how he would be supportive of, again, a, a program that's going to help veterans out um, because he was a veteran himself and he saw what that experience was. And so he's going to be very supportive of the VA loan programs and things that are going to help build those homes and that prosperity. Every one of those homes not only had innovations in their technology, but they needed to have appliances put in them and furnishings and carpeting and all that stuff. And not all had to be manufactured and with new technologies and new products and materials all being developed by recent college graduates in engineering programs and science programs that had gone to school on the GI Bill, you can see how it just multiplies that middle class and created all those neighbors, again, moving out to those places. We, we would not have the America that we have today without that GI Bill. Three-bedroom, two-bath ranch. 2800 bucks. <laughs> For 2800 bucks. In the good old That's, days, the, the developers would build out the entire subdivision. That's not even a down payment. <laughs> no, it isn't. You'd have it to isn't. add three zeros to that, too. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, they would build the entire subdivision out in the, in the late 50s and 60s. You could not buy a home in a subdivision until it was completely done. Mm -hmm. And that's how they got such huge economies of scale. No changes, no customizing, nothing. Uh, we're going to open the gates, and we're going to give you little red soul tags. And you're going to run to the house that you want to hang your soul tag on. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do it all at 
6 o'clock in the morning on July 2nd. Mm -hmm. And they would open these gates and literally thousands of people carrying soul tags would be running through the neighborhood hanging soul tags on. And then, guy, that's, you know, um, that that's how Dale Webb. Dale Webb and John F. Long. John F. Long. Uh, you know, established Maryvale uh, was kind of John F. Long's big uh, uh, contribution. And John F. Long also... Uh, one of the things in the mass production of those homes, he started building the trusses off-site yeah. and then trucking them in and developed, the, I think it's the, the brace, the, the, that metal bracket that, that braces the angles. Yeah. That was part of his innovations because then they could pre-manufacture those trusses and bring them on and just hang them on the, the block walls and put those houses up much faster, so... Uh, pretty incredible kind of stuff there. Yeah, I don't think John F. Long gets quite the credit he deserves for what he did for the housing industry, particularly in Maricopa County, because he did begin to introduce the idea of component construction. And he built his masonry homes of the 60s to this day are still homes of solid bones. He built a good home. During that that boom period of time, and let's say 1957 to 1967, over half a million homes were built in Phoenix. And I dare say that 85% of them are still standing. The only thing that takes them down is a freeway coming through or, uh, or an accidental Christmas tree fire. I mean, they, they're so solidly built. And you can drive around neighborhoods and see them. The ones with the, you see the weeping mortar on some of them. That's right. Uh, you see, uh, they're all ranch styles. You see the old metal windows that people steel, are out trying steel to... Steel frame, single pane glass, and casement they're, windows. They're all about 1,100 to 1,300 square feet. They uh, might have a one-car garage. I mean... Or carport. Or carports. Yeah. And, and they were designed to be kind of uniform, and then people could come back and customize them later on. That was why they didn't have a whole lot of options. It kept the cost down. But then over time, people could upgrade their kitchen if they wanted to, but... Sometimes you actually find homes that still have those original kitchens. Oh, you do. Absolutely. With, with the Formica countertops and the little silver trim on them and the small spot for the stove. And, you know, you still see the small bathrooms and the and the honeycomb tile and the subway tile on the walls and stuff. I mean, you can characteristically see those homes throughout the valley. And today, when we see those homes, we're generally tearing the wall out between the kitchen and the family living, what, what was then the living room, dining room, and we're just creating one great grand space, mm -hmm. opening those homes up. And ironically enough, there seems to be a trend of people now reducing those grand open spaces and putting it back into many habitat areas where you could have a school area over here, a home office over here, sure. a family gathering area over in the other corner. So it's going to be interesting to see how this whole housing trend goes in the next decade. Sure. And you uh, did a show just a few weeks ago about uh, some of the larger examples had those sunken living rooms. Oh, yeah. And you did a, a, a great show on, on people filling in those and the complexity of that uh, that was really good. Uh, people want to fill in their those sunken living rooms. Yeah, know. we thought it was a great idea in the 60s for Sunken living rooms and sunken garden tubs in the master bath. <laughs> Ooh, big, big premium upgrades, baby. Uh, what about the planters underneath uh, a leaky skylight? Oh, you yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the stone planter that everybody trips over now, uh, are they fill it in with a uh, piece of plywood so that 
they can set stuff on it or whatnot. Exactly. Yeah, those those atrium skylights in the middle of the living room. <laughs> we just filled one in at McCormick Ranch just a couple months ago and, and added uh, a nice big old, actually doubled the size of the kitchen by eating that thing up and making it go away. <laughs> and, and, you know, John F. Long, you mentioned not, doesn't get a lot of credit, but, you know, he, establishing Maryvale, building 30,000 homes, creating a community there that has churches and has high schools and has parks and golf courses and all those things, that was kind of the place to live in the 1950s and the 1960s. That was where middle class uh, Arizonans were going to, and then they were going to work out at Goodyear or uh, or in uh, some of the other manufacturings at Intel and uh, Motorola and those kind of plants and things. I mean, it's really a footprint of this, uh, the prosperity of the 1950s that was generated by McFarland's GI Bill. Good neighbors. Good neighbors, a big part of being a good neighbor is knowing your neighbor. When we get back, let's talk a little bit about getting over your hesitation at going next door and knocking on the door and introducing yourself. Being a good neighbor. Our overall focus of uh, this last hour, we talked a little bit about being a bad neighbor and some historical examples of those. We've been talking lately about examples of good neighbors. You know, our article of the week is it's easy to be a good neighbor. Doctor, you had another great example of an Arizona good neighbor. Sure. And, and I'd like to introduce, if people don't know him, his name is Frank Barrios. And he's uh, a, a person who's uh, really a, uh, a preserver of neighbors and neighborhoods uh, by documenting history. Uh, he comes from one of the oldest Hispanic families here in Arizona. Um, and he likes to remind people that uh, as neighbors— our neighbors include the Hispanic communities. Uh, some of the earliest settlers in the Phoenix area were Hispanic. Uh, we credit Jack Swilling with establishing, founding Phoenix as a farmer. That's right. Uh, selling uh, alfalfa to Fort McDowell. But his wife was Hispanic. The first sheriff in town was uh, was a Hispanic um, by the name of Enrique Garfias. Uh, you've got uh, uh, other Mexican leaders that are here as part of our community. Um, and uh, the old community, the heart of that Hispanic community in downtown Phoenix has been gone uh, for a long time. The airport expansion has uh, uh, obviously needed, but obliterated uh, one of the oldest uh, Hispanic communities, dispersed that to other parts of the city. And it, he really uh, became passionate about preserving that uh, community. So he's done a lot to collect oral histories, to collect uh, photographs, to bring people back into that uh, Sacred Heart community where the Sacred Heart Church still stands today. As it's you, the one remnant of that community that was obliterated. It's the one it's thing. Standing right. there all by itself. It is. And you can, as you drive on 16th Street, you can kind of see it there. Uh, if you're kind of around the airport area, you can see it. It's very iconic. Uh, and it's still a rallying point for that community, even though it's been dispersed. And uh, Frank is a, a really big part of of preserving that history, bringing those people together. And I, I bring him up as an example because everyone in their neighborhoods 
can be a neighborhood preserver, can can collect those stories, get out across the street and meet your neighbors. Where are they from? Are they new move people here? Because that's a lot of what, say, people live in Chandler, right? Most people live in Chandler or Gilbert or, oh, or kids are from somewhere else. Well, they have a story, but they bring that story to, to Arizona. They bring that story to their communities here. And so get to know your neighbors and find out where they're from and how that communicates together uh, and preserve some of that so we have those stories going forward. You know, in writing this letter, this article, we um, talked to Bridges Connor from Get Organized, one of our partners, and she's in a new neighborhood. And she was talking about just the whole neighborhood is new and trying to get to know her neighbors and realizing that there's different cultures that are represented, different ages, and just it was some amount of effort to get to know and appreciate neighbors with different, from different places and different backgrounds. Yeah. Some of her funny stories about moving into a brand-new neighborhood, all brand-new people in the neighborhood, we'll be covering in greater detail in the upcoming weeks about what it takes to become a good neighbor. But uh, when we were talking neighbors, Doctor, we've got a great neighbor. Um, and you were mentioning that you, too, have a great neighbor. Sure. Our next door neighbor. Anytime you go out in your Christmas pajamas and take pictures with your neighbor in his Christmas pajamas, you, that's a good neighbor. That's a great neighbor, yes. And a shout-out to our friends Russ and Julie for being just great neighbors for decades. Uh, they, they want to tear down the block wall between our backyard and theirs so we can just go back and forth uh, to the pool and to the, to the barbecue and everything. They're just that kind of good neighbors, you know. So uh, we've enjoyed uh, going boating with them uh, and uh, having meals together and celebrating milestones of life and looking after each other and caring for each other's pets. And that's what neighbors are all about. We've got neighbors all around us that we've gone and made that effort to go and meet them. In fact, uh, uh, down the street from us, there's another family named the Deans. The backyard masonry wall innovated here in Maricopa County Mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s has detracted a lot from good neighbors. You don't see that in the Midwest. You walk out in your backyard, you can look eight eight houses down and see they're having a barbecue over there. You grab your hot dog, you just walk over there and join them. Right. Mm -hmm. So an interesting trend that was really kind of started right here in the Arizona neighborhoods of the 60s, running up masonry block walls to give everybody the privacy in their own backyard. Good neighbors, bad neighbors. We've got an article on our website. It's easy to be a good neighbor. It talks about introducing yourself, setting up channels of communication, have ways you can contact your neighbor, learn to look out for your neighbor, and they too will in turn look out for you. It does a lot for neighborhood safety and preservation. When we get back, we'll be going into the 10 o'clock hour, and we'll be talking about, okay, it's a new year. Let's do some planning for some annual maintenance and repairs. And what home projects have you got on the calendar? Let's visit about that here on New Year's Day this next hour at my house, Rosie on the House.